Father in heaven, we've um, already thought with Jill uh, how hard we find it to wait. And yet we confess before you, at times we can wait, but in our own strength. And so we pray that as we um, look at your, your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we might be those who are quick to listen. We pray that we might be those who in your strength obey. Amen. At least until fairly recently, one of the messages from the world was, Christians, you can do your thing if you like. You, you gather on a Sunday morning and that's fine. Maybe you're the singing hymns kind of person. Maybe that's what you like to do. Me, not so much, they would say. But that is you and that is your private thing and that is okay. Just don't, don't let it spoil our friendship. Don't tell me about it. Thank you very much. And so we easily, as believers, end up having this kind of sacred, secular divide going on. That is, life with different compartments. There is this private, sacred compartment that we're allowed to have, the world says. We go to church, we open our Bibles, we, we pray and we do all that kind of God stuff. But then there's this sort of public, secular compartment where everything else fits in and God isn't allowed. That's where we go to work. That's where we do our shopping. That's where we have friends. That's where we go to sports clubs. And we can be friends with them as long as the God stuff doesn't infringe upon the kind of public, secular stuff. The the sacred section of the week is not allowed to mix with the, the secular section of the week, they say. Don't get that wrong. Don't get that muddled. Keep him for Sunday and you'll be fine. Trouble is, I don't think James would be okay with that. In fact, I don't think the Bible would be okay with that. If you've been around in previous weeks, you will know he is writing to these scattered believers and you'll know an idea that sits at least near the heart of the letter is this idea of double-mindedness. If you've got James open in front of you, have a look down Remind yourself back in 1 verse 8, for example, or 4 verse 8 as well. Um, 1 verse 8, he's talking about someone blown this way and that by all the trials and troubles of life, by hardships. And James says, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. That kind of sets the tone for much of the letter. Or later on in 4 verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded And you remember, when he talks about being double-minded, he's talking about the kind of person who sees the attraction of Jesus. Maybe they even hear the good news of Jesus. They hear the voice that says, come and follow me, but they can't quite bring themselves to go all in with Jesus because they can feel the, the pull of the other voices way too loudly. And so I think a double-minded person ends up with compartments in life ends up with a sacred and a secular compartment even. You've got the God bit, and then you've got the rest of life bit. You've got the Sunday bit, and then the rest of the week bit. And on Sunday, they're shoulder to shoulder with everyone else. But then the rest of the week, they're shoulder to shoulder with everyone else again, and they're just blending in. And the danger with a life of double-mindedness, a life of compartments, a a sacred secular divide going on, is that there are zones where I don't really let God in when it comes down to it. There are doors that I keep locked. There are areas where I try and do life in my own strength. 
And at least in practice, God isn't that welcome. And so what is James's encouragement for us today from the end of chapter 5, from the end of the letter even? It's one word. It's pray. Pray all the time. Remove the compartments, it seems to me. Let God into all of it, not just in theory, but on paper, in practice as well. And, and when life is hard, you pray. When life is good, you praise him. When we're struggling, when we feel like we're going to wave the white flag, we're not quite sure whether we can keep going. As a believer, we pray. When we're rejoicing, we pray. So just kind of sweep over the passage with me. Verse 13, let them pray. Verse 13, again, let them sing songs of praise. Verse 14, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, verse 17, he prayed earnestly. Or verse 18, again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. And if you're there with the passage in front of you and a highlighter and you're, repeating, you're highlighting repeated words, Pray would be one of the first ones I suspect that you would go for. I'm also aware that a sermon on prayer has great potential to make us feel guilty. Because for most of us, it is hard to pray, isn't it? I think actually that is the norm. For those of us who don't struggle in our prayer, in our prayers, then you are abnormal. So maybe you finish the day and you find that you've drifted through and in reality there's been little awareness of God in all that you've done. Maybe the, the sacred secular life compartmentalization that we easily slip into is powerful, especially if we are working in a hostile environment where God is not welcome, especially if you're working in a busy environment where your mind is just occupied. You just want to make it through and get everything done to get through the to-do list, to send all the emails. What does James say? What does he call us to do? Well, to turn to the Lord firstly and pray when we are suffering. So we're to pray when we are suffering. You might remember the, um, the context of the letter. It's one of hardship. There's lots of things going on in James, but a big one is that these scattered Christians are struggling. So again, back in chapter 1, I mean, 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And the fact that he's going to talk about trials of many kinds, I don't think that is just hypothetical. Or even last week, if you were here with Matt, um, the first bit of, or middle bit of chapter 5, be patient then, as Jill was telling us, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the, pay, the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Why be patient? Be patient because it's hard. Because it's hard to keep going. And so he writes to these scattered and suffering followers of Jesus, and he says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them look inside themselves for the answer. He doesn't say that. He says, let them pray. Let them pray. It's not straight into put out the fire, problem solving, to-do list management mode. 
No, pray. That's where we go first. And as his children, whenever we turn to him, we have his attention. And as his children, whenever we turn to him, we have his authority. So why wouldn't we pray? Think about life. You, you know where to go, don't you, when things go wrong in different areas of life. So our car at the moment is having a few issues. Partly it's getting old. And partly it's that the suppliers apparently keep sending the wrong bits to the garage so it can't quite get fixed. What do you do when your car is in trouble? You take it to the garage, obviously. What do you do when you're having problems with your teeth? Where do you go? Not rhetorical. Dentist, thank you. If your goldfish is looking ill and you live in East Oxford, you'll probably go to the goldfish bowl on Magdalen Road. That's probably where you go. Maybe to replace it or maybe to help it. <laughs> what do you do in my house when you are having problems with math homework? At least secondary school problems with math homework. You probably don't come to me. You probably go to my wife, who is much better at math than me. We know where to go in different areas of life when we are struggling. What do we do when we have a life problem? We go to the author of life. We go to our Father in heaven. He is the one we are to go to. We don't look inside. We look to him. Is any of you in, in trouble? Let them pray. And maybe that means at times we have to press pause and humble ourselves and we have to stop and we have to trust and cease all the activity and the problem solving and doing it in our own strength and to confess that he is God and we are not God. But friends, if we have a problem with life, we go to the author of life. Why wouldn't we? What a privilege to know that we have him on our side and it is never a wrong time with him. It's never too hard for him. And as we are his in Christ, as we are his totally loved children, he is never bored, he is never disgusted, he is never reluctant. He's never had enough of us. We pray. He's more willing to listen and answer than we are to pray. So when we're suffering, we pray. Secondly, when we're smiling. Second half of verse 13. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Do you see, our God is behind the good stuff too. The, the good gifts that we enjoy are from our, our good Father in heaven. So I want you to think of some of the things in life that you are most thankful for. Okay? Get something or some things up there. Maybe it's a person or people... Maybe it's an experience or a thing or a place or a season of life, a something, a memory. And I'm assuming that what you've just thought of is not a sinful thing. But those good things that we enjoy are gifts from our Father in heaven. The Bible ultimately would say you did not get that thing or experience or person or place by yourself. They were a gift to you from him. But James has already said it back in number 117, every good and perfect gift is from above. Our God is a generous giver. He is kind. But here's the thing. So often we enjoy the gift and we forget the giver. 
But that is not meant to happen because the gift is meant to draw us to the giver, to point us to him. It's meant to lead us to the one who gave it. So imagine, and maybe some of you have experienced this, it is the aftermath of a chaotic, crazy children's birthday party. Everyone's gone home, they're full of fizzy drinks, they're full of chocolate, full of caffeine, <laughs> um, unable to sleep for a week. And you look around the room and, and all over the place there's wrapping paper strewn everywhere, there's, there's sellotape, there's envelopes, and there they are, sat in the middle of it all, playing with this perfect present, and it is ideal, and they love it. Ah, oh, I wish I could thought about getting that for them. And, and you say, who's that from? And they say, I don't know. I, I lost the tag, I don't know who it's from. And what, actually, why, why should I care who it's from? I'm just enjoying it. Why does it matter who gave it to me? They snap at you with their sugar-inflicted brains. But it, it feels wrong, doesn't it? They are playing with this present. They, they are loving it. And as grown-ups, we know we want to say thank you to the person whom it's from. We have a little system where we, where we write down names on our phones as they open the present so that they can actually go and say thank you later. It is wrong not to say thank you because we know that self-entitlement stinks. And yet so often for us as believers, we, we enjoy the gift. We enjoy the thing and we forget who it came from. But we know the generous one who gave it. And in one sense, this whole point, the whole point of the gift is to draw us to them. To lead us to their heart. Another illustration. You're a teenager. You receive a birthday gift from a friend. And it's out of the blue. It's unexpected. Maybe someone in your class. Maybe someone you don't know that well. And you open it and it is just perfect. So thoughtful. So ideal. And suddenly you realize, oh, huh. oh, you really care about me. Goodness. The gift reveals the love of the giver. It shows us their heart. And so James says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Let us say thank you to the God who has given us this gift. That that's what it's meant for. That's what it's there for. Drawing us to him and what he's like. So secondly, when we're smiling. Thirdly, when we're sick. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. You see, the author of life is able to bring life to his people. And so when someone is sick, it is right that we pray. It is right that... Indeed, the elders are to pray over them. And I want to say now, it's a massive privilege for us as elders to come and do that at times with some of you. To come on over to pray, to anoint with oil. If that's something that you would appreciate, and you've never quite plucked up the courage, or you've never thought of it, hey, come and chat to me afterwards. We'd love to help with that. But what is going on, we say? What's going on, and why the oil? Um, it sounds a bit weird. Lots of ink has been spilled over this. Um, just notice a few things with me um, as we look at these verses. I think it's firstly worth saying it's likely that the person who is ill is particularly struggling. We're not talking about kind of allergies here or a bit of a sniffle or a cold or hay fever. No, we're talking of the need to call in the elders for help. It's not just mild, I think it's big, it's major. 
And the calling of the elders, well, I suspect it's kind of formally being recognized by the church body. We sometimes read the New Testament and we think of the early church, we think, oh, it's just a big happy family, there was no kind of order or structures, and yet we, we know, for example, there were lists of widows in 1 Timothy 5, so I think it's not far to say, well, this is you speaking to the elders and saying, look, I'm struggling, could you come and pray for me? Maybe there's even some kind of care list going on there. Maybe then it's the, the elders, the under-shepherds, they can organize something, they can put things in place to provide help for the person struggling. Because they're elders, they can do that. Because they're elders as well, it ought to be that their prayer is powerful. Do you see, they, are, they ought to be anyway righteous, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that ought to be, there ought to be a godly example within the elders. You look at Timothy or Titus or 1 Peter 5, and you see part of what it means to be an elder, qualifications, is primarily about character over competence. So they go and pray then actually the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And why oil? Why oil? I don't think it's a sacrament. I don't think it's supernatural. I think most likely is a picture of being dedicated to the Lord. That's how it was used in the Old Testament with kings and priests being set apart. It's a symbol that they are holy in the Lord's hands. Oil represents a kind of devotion to the Lord. And maybe... If we think James in the backdrop of double-mindedness, maybe that's in contrast to that. This is, this is them showing that they are not wavering and riding two bikes, but rather they are committed and steadfast and they belong entirely to the Lord. That's what's going on. And yet, does it promise healing? It's worth saying this passage has been abused. These verses have been abused. Maybe even you've been on the end of that at times. Clearly, from experience, we would say, no. No, it is not promising healing. Where it says, verse 15, we'll come on to in a moment, and the Lord will raise them up. Now, it seems to me we should always pray for healing. It's right at times that we should call the elders to pray. But we shouldn't presume that God will heal. Sometimes in God's plans and purposes, sometimes he is doing something else and the illness is a part of that, he's using that. Think of Paul at 2 Corinthians 13. Three times he prays for the thorn to be removed. And yet the Lord says, no. No, no, you're going to continue to have that and it's going to remind you of your weakness and of my strength. It's going to remind you that you can't do life on your own. You can't do it on your own. And so it's going to keep pointing you back to me in my strength. So at times, sometimes the Lord uses suffering to humble us, to draw us back to himself, to remind us that we need him. So why does it say that the Lord will raise them up? Verse 15. One writer says this. I found this helpful. It says, praying in faith isn't a magic formula that twists God's arm to do what we want. Rather, praying in faith both boldly asks God to heal a sick brother or sister and humbly trusts God's perfect plan, a plan that culminates with Christ saving and raising up all of his people in the resurrection. 
You, see, you might know from experience, as well I, that sometimes a raising up does not mean in the here and now. Sometimes that raising up is a final there and then thing when Jesus comes back for all eternity. Sometimes in God's sovereign plans and purposes, we trust him that he will raise them up when Christ returns. In modern road, you can trust him. I don't know where that hits for you this morning, what the struggle is, what the concern is, what the burden is that you are carrying, what even the illness is. But I want to say again, it is our immense privilege as elders to be able to pray with you over these things. So if there are things that you would like us to come and pray for, please, please do come and talk. Maybe that you are struggling or suffering. It may be that nobody else knows about it, hopefully except for your doctor. But please do call the elders to come and pray. We would love to be able to do that with you. It is a privilege. Fourthly, when we're sinful. Fourthly, when we're sinful. Pick it up again, verse 15b. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And it's striking that he links it with the sickness. So he puts sinfulness in with sickness. Again, that's been abused in the past. It seems to me that the point is there that there is a power in repentance. There is a power in unity. There is a power in community health within a church. Again, I was preparing. I was reminded of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, we often read it when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper together. Um, but actually, the context of that seems to be some parallels here, I think, in James. In 1 Corinthians 11, there was a church that was divided. There were people that were being taken for granted. There were folk within the church family who were being missed out and abused. And again, it seems rather like James, there was a rich and poor dynamic going on. Maybe the rich were abusing the poor. And Paul's conclusion as he as he teaches them on that, is that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, by which he means dying. And it seems to me in our, in our minds we so easily compartmentalise again. We can have the God stuff over here and the normal stuff, kind of life stuff, illness even over here somewhere else. And yet the Bible just ties them up so often. We are whole beings there's a, there's a spiritual sickness here, and at times we see in the scriptures, that, that can lead to a physical sickness even. It's not something that we're great at understanding. It seems to me that our application, at least in part, must be that we are quick to say sorry as a church family. We are quick to ask for forgiveness from him. We are quick to seek forgiveness from others. We follow a king who daily taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That seems to me to be a daily prayer. And it ought to be something that sets the church apart. I'm not sure it always is. Forgiveness ought to be at the heart of our community life. We ought to be quick to say sorry, quick to keep short accounts, quick to forgive. And yet I look at my own life, and maybe the way others have treated me at times, 
And as Christians, we can be slow to forgive, quick to hold a grudge. Maybe, maybe this week this is the nudge that we need to confess, to forgive, to return. Maybe it's an email, maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's just a, a complicated, difficult conversation that you've been putting off. seems to me there is power in confession and forgiveness. Satan loves to divide churches. And one of the ways it seems to me he does that so often is through grudges and unforgiveness, as we don't apply the grace that we receive to one another. Now, I say at Morgan Road, I think actually we are a strangely united church. The Lord has been very kind to us. We are quite different in many ways. But there is a lot of forgiveness and a lot of good conversations that happen. And yet maybe there are areas in life, different friendships, different Christians that you're aware of, different people even, and it's right to think, okay, do I need to go and confess to them and to forgive them? And then he talks about Elijah, verse 17. Why does James, at this point, at the end of the letter, chuck us the curveball of Elijah? I think in one sense he is just an example of the power of prayer. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. Elijah prayed that it would rain and it did. Here is someone who is wholeheartedly following the Lord. And yet I wonder whether the context of Elijah actually is really important. We mustn't miss this. People reading initially will have known it better than us, perhaps. You perhaps knew their Bibles better than we do. But the backdrop for Elijah, the context was the people of God were the archetypal double-minded of the time. They didn't know who to follow. They didn't know where they could trust the Lord. Elijah said that they were sat on the fence. They were assessing the options. They weren't sure whether it was worth trusting the Lord, whether he had the power or, or Baal did. And so 1 Kings 18, scribble it down if you like, read it later. 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said, nothing. They looked shiftily at their shoes. So why does James choose Elijah as the example? Maybe, maybe Elijah is the single-minded commitment in the midst of double-minded compromise. All around him were double-minded people. And yet Elijah is unwavering in his trust for the Lord and the power of prayer. James says to us, come back to him. Come back to the Lord. Why? Why do you keep trying to do life without him? He's the author of life. He's interested in it all. He's Lord of it all. When, when it's good, pray. When it's bad, pray. When you're suffering, when you're smiling, when you're sick, when you're sinful, come back to the author of life. He is powerful. He is good. Let's pray now.
Father in heaven, we pray for those as part of Magdalen Road who are suffering at this time. Lord, whatever that suffering might be, whatever that suffering represented in the room here, we pray that they would turn to you and that you would draw near. You would give them the strength in the midst of their suffering. You would comfort. You would equip. You would provide. You would be at work. Lord, we pray for those who are smiling at this time, for whom life is good, who are well aware of the blessings that you are pouring on them. And so we pray increasingly that we might, we might know that the good gift leads us to the good giver, that increasingly we might be those who give thanks, who sing songs of praise, who don't think that we've achieved them in some way, We've got them in our own strength. But to know that they are a, a gift from you and your kindness. Well, we pray for those who are sick. I think particularly perhaps of those struggling with long-term COVID, chronic fatigue, that kind of stuff. Father, we pray that you would bring healing. We pray that you would bring fullness and restoration. And yet we pray that even in that, if that is not your will at this time, you would be at work in them. Or that they would be growing in their love and their trust for you. That they would, in their weakness, know your power, your might, your strength. Lord, you know how so often sickness can turn us into ourselves and away from you. And yet we pray that wouldn't happen. And pray for those who are sinful. Lord, that's one sense all of us. Pray that if there needs to be confession, if there needs to be restoration, if there needs to be a return to one another, then you would help that to happen. We pray that the grace and mercy that each of us has received from you might work its way out in the culture of Magdalen Roads, the way that we can live together, in the community that we are together, we would keep short accounts. We would love each other because you've loved us. And Lord, we pray for, pray for us as a church at the end of this letter, Lord. We pray that we would not be those who simply hear the word and so deceive ourselves. But by your spirit, give us the strength to live it out. Lord, where you have spoken to us, Give us the grace that we need to apply. In Jesus' name, amen.